Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your presence, that you are here with us. Lord, week after week, I'm reminded that we are unable and insufficient for these beautiful truths to understand them, to proclaim them. And yet, you, God, are a God of revelation, that you have revealed yourself and you make yourself known. We ask that you would do this this day. We thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the things that I have really, really enjoyed about having three weeks in a row and being able to do a series is that we're able to tie ideas together as Paul has laid them out. And we're able to understand Paul like the Corinthians would have. See, Paul has a beautiful mind in a way of seeing God's world and the Scriptures and the doctrines therein and life in this connected and orderly way. Have you ever seen documentaries of river explorers? And if you're like at boat level with them and you're traveling down the river with them, uh, it feels like they're isolated, that the river they're on is all by itself. But if you rise above the tree lines and you get this aerial view of the river, you'll see that it's connected to this broader network of rivers and water sources. And it all goes back to a single origin. See, for Paul, he takes the aerial view of life, noting both the origin and the end of all things flow back to our great Creator and our Sustainer. See, for us, it's easy to miss the bigger picture because of our isolated circumstances or maybe difficult doctrines. But Paul is a good navigator, and he gives us good direction. We see this as Paul continues to weave together new themes and old themes in our passage today, treading and retreading ground, modifying metaphors for us to help us understand God's way and God's world in ever-increasing light. So today's passage breaks down into three imperatives for us. First, we'll see that Paul calls us to continual confidence in the pure Word of God. Secondly, Paul asks us to open our hearts to the blindness of unbelievers. And then thirdly, Paul tells us to proclaim the Gospel, trusting in God's recreative work in our lives and in the lives of unbelievers. See, overall, Paul urges believers to follow his example, 
to proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. What a beautiful thing. So first, let's explore how Paul calls us to continual confidence in God's Word. In verses 1 and 2, Paul brings us from last week's emphasis on being New Covenant believers to what it looks like to be ministers of the New Covenant or for Paul to be a minister of the New Covenant. Remember the glorious heights that Paul has proclaimed declaring how much greater the New Covenant is than the Old Covenant. It contains permanent, surpassing glory in Christ that is supplied and applied by the Spirit who works individually in the hearts and the minds of believers. That we with unveiled face behold the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the image of Christ from one degree of glory to another. It's incredible not only to objectively theorize, but to subjectively, personally know that God is writing on our hearts manifesting Himself in our lives. See, God is at work, and we live in Him, in His presence, and before His face. So it's no wonder that Paul has so much confidence. He says in verse 1, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. See, this implies that losing heart maybe growing weary, burning out, or turning back from his ministry would look incredibly natural to people that were watching him. Remember, Paul is writing to the Corinthians for many reasons. But one of the reasons he's doing this is to defend the truth of his apostolic ministry. Remember, there are opponents in Corinth that cast doubt on his ministry and on his mission. They said things like, Look at how Paul suffers. Look at how he is beaten. He was stoned for crying out loud. Look at how much the Jews hate him and the Gentiles despise him. Look at the difficulty of his life. Is this what an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ should look like? Is this what he should experience? Can you trust a message from someone like that? And Paul's simple answer to this question is absolutely yes. See, Paul will come back to this theme of not losing heart in the next passage. And he'll actually talk about how his suffering is a proof of God's mark on his life to be an apostle of the suffering servant. But for now, Paul redirects us. And he goes to proclaim his confidence in God's Word. See, he understands that he holds the pure message of God in the Scriptures. Gospel, good news to all mankind. See, God doesn't need Paul to contemporize the Bible. He doesn't need Paul to update it or revise it or make it culturally relevant or to develop a really good sales pitch so that people will understand and accept the authority of God's Word. No, instead, Paul says that he refuses to use any underhanded ways, any disgraceful ways, that he refuses to practice cunning or tamper with God's Word in any way. See, instead, he will just declare it openly, unashamedly, bare before both God and man. The message in verse 5 is simple. Jesus Christ is Lord. Not Paul, 
not Caesar, not anyone else. No, Jesus Christ is Lord, and Paul has come as his servant, not to declare himself or to take creative license or to make an appeal. He's making an appeal to people to God. But he's not taking creative license. No, God is the king. And Paul sees himself only as a messenger, a conduit of God's word. When Paul preaches to unbelievers, he does so with the authority of a messenger who's walking into enemy territory. You can imagine the scene maybe in those, those old or movies about maybe the Greek city-states uh, where a messenger comes into town with this message of condemnation and maybe a message of warning to this city that you need to change or else. And he struts into town and he's surrounded by warriors. But you notice he's confident. That he speaks confidently and openly to the people. Not because he can make good on the threat himself or take the city down himself, but because of the power for which he speaks, the superior power that sent him in the first place. See, Paul sees himself and all Christians as messengers with confidence who are carrying God's word and standing boldly upon it. The question is, is this how we live? Is this how we speak? I mean, think about it with me. God, the God of the universe, has spoken to us. He has given us His Word. That from His mouth, His Word came forth. And it was written down for us. That the Bible that we hold is unlike any other book. It is a supernatural book with a divine author. And he's not bound by time or space or any other limitation at all. He has perfect knowledge of past, present, and future. He created us. He knows our every need and every desire of our hearts. And he has given us what we need in his word. Do you come with reverence and awe to your Bibles, knowing that the thing that we hold in our hands is holy? That God's Word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. That God meets us there and the Spirit opens our eyes and our hearts and our minds through it. That we meet Jesus and find ourselves transformed in His image. It's easy for us to come to the Bible without great expectations. But what if? What if we approached it expecting God to show up, to speak to it, to bring us to repentance, to experience deep joy and peace and give us light in our hearts to see His glory? What if He used His Word to change our perceptions, our thinking, and our hearts? See, uh, Spurgeon compares the Word of God to a lion and provides powerful imagery. He says, suppose a number of persons were to take it into their heads that they had to defend a lion, full-grown king of the beasts. There he is in the cage, and here come all these soldiers of an army to fight for him. Well, I would suggest to them that they should kindly stand back and open the door and let the lion out. I believe the best way of defending him would be for the lion to take care of himself. What would happen if we approached God's Word with a fraction of the reverence that we would feel in the presence of an uncaged lion? 
Do we understand the power of God portrayed and displayed in His Word? See, my prayer for us as a church is that we might have confidence like Spurgeon in the Word of God. That we might have confidence like Paul. That we might look to God and believe that He has spoken truth to us. His timeless and glorious Word. Truth that applies not only to ourselves, but to all nations, all people, all cultures, all tongues. And if He did, why would we ever think to tamper with something like that? But Paul anticipates his opponents and their rebuttal in verse 3. They retort, so Paul, if this gospel is so glorious and God is so powerful and He's spoken to us, why aren't people flocking to church? Why aren't people giving up their ways to bask in the glory of God? Why is it so hard for people to trust God's Word and the good news of the Gospel that it contains? Well, Paul responds, that's because the Gospel is veiled to unbelievers, those who are perishing. We see parallels of the veil in last week's passage. The veil was something that was laid over the Old Covenant. And it covered Moses' bright face. It hid the fading nature of God's external glory on Moses' face. It remains over the hearts and minds of unbelieving Jews who did not see the Christ of the Old Covenant. Last week, Paul used the veil as a thing, a noun. But this week, we see that he's using it as an action, a verb. And notice what's happening Unbelievers are being actively veiled. They are blinded. They are kept from seeing the glory of Christ. And knowing this, Paul shows us how this radically changes the way that believers should respond and relate to unbelievers. First, how does Paul respond to the criticism and the denial of the Gospel by both Jews and Gentiles? Well, he does so without losing heart Because he sees that they are blind. They're unable to spiritually see and understand the things of God. See, Paul reminds us that those who see don't doubt their sight because of the blind who cannot see. The stars don't disappear when the blind look at the sky. God doesn't cease to exist when someone says so or holds to that belief. Christ's divinity isn't in jeopardy when someone says that He was just a good man or a prophet or maybe He didn't even exist. No, God exists and Jesus is His Son, the Savior of the world, incarnate deity. These are objective facts that God has revealed to us in His Word. And they are either true or they're not. It's not like there's really middle ground between the two. See, as Paul began, robust Christian faith begins by trusting God at His Word, finding Christ proclaimed in the Scriptures. This is precisely the place where the God of this world, Satan, attacks. From the beginning, he's always been a deceiver, casting doubt on God's truthfulness and His Word. And the point of the attack in the garden, you remember, is did God really say dot, dot, dot? But why did Adam and Eve listen to the serpent? 
We don't hear that he was present when God spoke to them. So why are they listening to someone who wasn't there instead of the God who spoke? Why would we question our spiritual sight that God has shown into our hearts? Because someone is blind to these things. And so we see that Paul is confident despite opposition because he trusts God more than he trusts the testimony of unbelievers. But you'll notice that that's not all. you notice also Paul's tone and his concern for these people. There's not a hint of animosity. He does not mock the blind. He's not angry with them for not seeing Christ. And how do we react when we see someone who is physically blind? I mean, it would be a very mean-hearted, evil person who would harass them or put a stumbling block in their way or take out their anger on someone who is blind. I mean, most of us would find sympathy for what they are missing, a desire to help, a longing to help them see. And what if this blindness is curable? What if glasses or surgery could make them well? Wouldn't we do anything in our power to help bring these people to sight. See, Paul understands that spiritual blindness is only cured through spiritual sight. So this is what he proclaims. When he's rejected, we don't see him backing down, but rather continuing to pursue the lost. He doesn't mock those who persecute him. He doesn't speak poorly about those who seek him harm. Instead, he understands their blind, perilous position and he urgently works to show them Christ. See, Paul's heart goes out to the lost. Does ours. How much do we care about the plight of the lost and the blind and the perishing people all around us? How easy it is for us to complain about society that it doesn't think like us that it doesn't hold our views, that it doesn't care about our theology of life. So often it seems like Christians are really good at ranting and raving about culture and mocking those who don't believe in God or hold views that seem ridiculous to us. But this is just kicking the spiritually blind, retreating from real people with actual needs. God created us in His image to find satisfaction and purpose in living according to the pattern for our lives. Why should we expect people to live according to God's pattern when they haven't heard His voice, when they haven't come to Him through His Son? Jesus wept over Jerusalem. He prayed for His enemies. Paul cried out for the souls of unbelievers and proclaimed a message of love to those who hated Him. How about us? Are we willing to let our hearts be burdened with the reality of the spiritual needs that surround us? The beautiful thing is that Paul tells the Corinthians that there is a cure to spiritual blindness. See, spiritual blindness can only be cured through the light of the gospel. See, darkness can only be treated with its opposite, light. But light and darkness are really unique opposites. We talked about this at VBS a couple weeks ago, so kids that were there may remember this. Uh, The opposite of hot is cold. And when you put them together, you get something in between that's neither hot nor cold. If you mix black and white, you get gray. 
If you take something that's, that's basic, like a base, and you take something that's acidic, and you put them together, you end up with something neutral. But if you mix light and darkness, what do you get? Well, you get light. The darkness recedes and light pervades. See, light and darkness are not equal opposites. Light wins. In fact, darkness can only be described in reference to light. I mean, if you look this up in the dictionary, I know that we all like to read our dictionaries, um, but in case you don't, I'll just give it to you. If you look up darkness, it's defined in the dictionary as an absence of light. Now, if you flip the page and you go to the L's and you look up light, you'll notice that it doesn't mention darkness at all. Rather, it's the agent that brings about sight to people. And think about sight for a second. It always blew my mind that we can see when an outside force, a source of light, bounces off of an object and then it enters our eyes. That our eyes are completely dependent on a light that they cannot produce. A reality that, that we are reminded of every day when the sun sets or when we close our eyes. See, light and darkness provide powerful imagery for us because they are so central to our lives. And Paul takes us to the God who created light, reminding us of God's creative work in the beginning. If you look at verse 6 of our text, Paul mentions God in his words in Genesis. He says, let light shine out of darkness. This reminds us, this is how the Bible begins. If you flip to the very first page and you start reading in Genesis, you read these words, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. Isn't that incredible to think about? That in the beginning, God existed. That in the beginning, God chose to create. That after God had created the heavens and the earth, we hear that the earth was unformed and darkness covered everything. So God chose to create light from nothing, ex nihilo, that God spoke into nothingness, which isn't even a thing that we can speak into. And yet that nothingness obeyed His voice. That light sprung forth in glorious radiance, revealing the creation and banishing darkness from its presence. And Paul says to the Corinthians, look, the God of creation, the God who spoke physical light into darkness, is also the God of recreation that speaks light into blind men's hearts. Shining light over darkness, bringing life over death. And look at the way that God does this. If you look at verse 4 in your order of worship, and then you look at verse 6, you'll see that these are parallel statements that Paul is making. And it shows us how God, God's way of bringing sight to the blind. So verse 4 says that we see through the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And then in verse 6, we see that through the light of the knowledge, the light of the gospel, light of knowledge, of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And so the light of the gospel corresponds to the light of knowledge, the glory of Christ 
parallels the glory of God and the image of God is in the face of Jesus Christ. We see that the Gospel comes with knowledge. It's not a feeling, emotion, a notion, an emotion, a religious sentiment, an ambivalent force. No, it's a message with very specific content. And the Gospel isn't simply about getting rid of sin or not fearing death or escaping the wrath of God or being happy and content in this life, finding joy or purpose. It's not even about primarily getting into heaven. No, all those things are effects. They're benefits of the Gospel. But the Gospel is the incredible good news that we get God. That He has come to be with us to rescue us. As David prayed, to be a Father to us. To be a Savior. The Gospel says that Christ has willingly, without reservation, come to us. That all of history, the Old Covenant, everything pointed to His great love and His patience and His kindness that He has for His people. It kept telling them, you need a Savior. Watch for Him. He's coming. Now in the New Covenant, we look back with a much greater message before us. We still need a Savior. But He has come. He is here. He calls us to look at Him, to know Him, and experience life with Him forever. That Jesus came and He will come again. The knowledge of the Gospel is the glory of God in Christ. He is the image of God and our greatest joy to behold our God in the face of Christ. Do we know this joy? Do we know what it means to have His light shine in our hearts, bringing us from darkness to light? See, Paul reminds us that this is the testimony of believers, that if you are in Christ, this is your story, and this is mine. Christ has not only recreated us, but He has called His people to go out with the gospel good news. We are not sufficient to bring people to faith. We need to remember we're not the source of power, the source of light to bring people to God. But we do notice that God is pleased to use means. He uses people like Paul and like you and like me to accomplish His purposes. People come to Christ when God works recreation in their hearts. And He chooses to do this as His people faithfully proclaim the simple gospel good news. It's not just by being a nice person or a good neighbor or an honest co-worker that God shines His light. Silent witness is important, but it isn't enough. God uses the content of the gospel proclaimed in words, communicated with knowledge to shine in the hearts of people. People of God, be confident in God's Word and care for the blind around you by proclaiming Christ, trusting that the God of creation will work supernatural recreation in sinners' hearts like He did for Paul and for you and for me. 
Let us live unashamedly proclaiming the light of the gospel, the knowledge of the surpassing glory of Christ. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.